Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. We'll have the latest on the subway shooting in Brooklyn. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. The director of Newark's Office of Violence Prevention, Lakeisha Ure, joins us to talk about what's next for her department. We are really looking to be able to find ways to decrease crime and violence better. WBGO commentator Mildred Antonor is excited that Katanji Brown-Jackson is now a member of the U.S. Supreme Court, but she was disgusted with the confirmation hearing. As a matter of fact, Senator Cruz at one point wouldn't even allow Justice Jackson to answer a question. And I'll chat with the creative team in charge of George Street Playhouse's new musical, A Walk on the Moon. I was seeing the hippies walking past the bungalow colony on their way to Woodstock, and I wanted to be with them. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The MTA is blaming an internet glitch for the problem with its cameras at two subway stations during Tuesday morning's mass shooting in Brooklyn. While the NYPD said claims the issue delayed the manhunt by many hours are unfair and misleading. Prosecutors earlier this week in a Brooklyn federal courtroom told a judge that 62-year-old Frank James terrified all of New York City. It was a brief first proceeding for James, accused of shooting 10 people and injuring many others on a crowded subway train in Brooklyn. All of the shooting victims are expected to survive. James is charged with a federal terrorism offense that applies to attacks on mass transit systems. Authorities say there is currently no evidence linking him to terror organizations. This is NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. We used every resource at our disposal to gather and process significant evidence that directly links Mr. James to the shooting. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. Meanwhile, the director of Newark's Office of Violence Prevention joined host Michael Hill this week on our Newark Today call-in show. Lakeisha Ure says while overall crime stats in Newark are down, the rates aren't where she liked to see them. She became involved in helping others in traumatic situations after her life was turned upside down several years ago. I didn't come on the scene probably until about 2011. In 2010, I had a boyfriend that was shot and killed in the city of Newark. I had a brother who was shot by the police. I had a brother who was shot by in, in, in community violence. And so I said to myself that I wanted to do something about it because I knew what it was like to be on the other side of that yellow tape when the police are saying, you can't come past this tape, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And there was no protocols around what to do. There was no one there um, to help tell me how to navigate the systems. If I live on Stratford, or I live on blocks that have high crime and violence, I'm going to say, no, the violence is still the same. We still have shootings. We still have carjackings. We still have um, robberies. We still have all of these things happening in the concentrated areas. So those people who are experiencing it would certainly say, no, violence and crime is not down. I don't care what the mayor says. I don't care what the statistics and the data say. I'm not experiencing it that way. So perspective matters. Um, and so while many of us say, well, numbers don't lie and all we care about is the data, but we do have to care about the, the, the qualitative, right? And the quantitative where the stories, people's stories matter um, and how people experience this matters. Um, and so they say, well, there's a 40% reduction in crime or there's a 50% reduction in crime. I would certainly say that our homicide numbers are down. 
back in five, six, seven years ago, we had hundred over 100 homicides, right? And so last year, I think we finished the year at about 57 or 58, which is still not great. That's, that's 57 or 58 homicides, too many. But I do remember the days when we had over 100 homicides a year. Um, and so we are really looking to be able to find ways to decrease crime and violence better. Um, people are still experiencing it at a high rate. Some people are experiencing it at a lower rate, depending on where you live. The rebroadcast of Newark Today will be tomorrow, Sunday at 6 p.m. on WBGO. You can see the entire show right now on the WBGO Facebook page. After 232 years, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is the first black woman on the Supreme Court. WBGO commentator Mildred Antonor watched the confirmation hearings and is still upset by what she heard. It was one of his most debatable campaign promises, and he came through with it. In February of this year, President Biden nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to be the 116th Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And finally, the Supreme Court is slowly but surely beginning to look like what America looks like, an ethnically and racially diverse nation of a rainbow of colors. Of course, we haven't reached it yet. For example, we don't have a Native American or Asian American justice, but I firmly believe that will happen. We've already started that conversation. We can't go back now. And I must say that this nomination is not a gift to Justice Jackson. She earned it. She graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School and served as supervising editor of the Harvard Law Review. She also served as vice chair and commissioner on the United States Sentencing Commission. And there are a myriad of other professional posts of hers that I could mention, but it's too long to point out in this commentary. Needless to say, the woman has credentials, but that's not what this opinion piece is about. I watched the hearings with intensity and familiarity. Why such focus, you might ask? Well, because as a Black woman, I too, in my own professional journey, have faced similar tactics that Katanji experienced recently during her confirmation hearings. I'm talking about two senators in particular, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham. I watched as Senator Graham complimented Judge Jackson with cliches and empty phrases, he started his verbal assault very softly and seemingly friendly, telling Katanji Jackson that her friends gave her a very glowing praise of her as a person and that she was a good friend to them. But as I watched it, I thought to myself, oh boy, here it comes. I was waiting for the disrespect, the insult, and the final closing statement to the tune of, well, you know, you're very intelligent and you've accomplished a few good things in your profession, but you're just not a good fit in this department and there's no room for you here. Thank you very much and good luck in your search. And that message certainly did come at the end of Senators Graham and Cruz's tirade against Katanji Brown Jackson. As a matter of fact, Senator Cruz at one point wouldn't even allow Justice Jackson to answer a question. He preferred to go on his rant and try to discredit her. You see, that's what usually happens. It's their MO. Watching the confirmation hearings gave me so many flashbacks to my own career journey of when I was going for a promotion and was being interviewed, or even if I inquired about a position that interested me. I often got the soft pushback that sounded very reticent and non-aggressive. It even came across as prudent advice. But the fact of the matter is, 
I wasn't going to be allowed in. And while I was being told that there was no room for me at the organization, I had to remain professional and cordial, just like Justice Jackson did during her questioning, as if I believed that they were helping me and were really concerned with my future. But all the while, I was left very, very frustrated. As a woman of color, we are held to a different standard and are expected to abide by it and not say a word lest we lose an opportunity or many opportunities. When Judge Brett Kavanaugh was being questioned before the Senate Judiciary Committee, he came up against some heat too. But because he is a white man, he had the luxury of responding and showed the world what he really felt. In his response against the sexual allegations, he called it a calculated and orchestrated political hit. He was very passionate about what he was saying, so much so that SNL used his impassioned responses in a comedic skit some days later. Justice Clarence Thomas, during his questioning with the Senate Judiciary Committee, in his response, he called it a high-tech lynching. My point is this. These men, black and white, were allowed to voice their frustrations, and oftentimes it was very emotional, but they were still hired to do a job. But women, no matter how qualified we are, are held to a different set of rules. Look, when a man gives his opinion, he's a man. But when a woman gives her opinion, she's a, well, you fill in the blank. I'm Mildred Antonor. Mildred Antonor is a regular contributor to the WBGO Journal and the author of The Gladioli Are Invisible, a memoir. Did I imagine that? Did I just make that call? I can barely breathe. No, I can't breathe at all. Look at me. I'm shaking. I must be insane. My heart is racing like a runaway subway train. Something's happening. Somebody crack that mirror. That woman isn't me. Somebody slam that door and throw away the key. She better snap awake She's making a big mistake But she just can't seem to keep the ground beneath her feet A Walk on the Moon A new musical starring Jackie Burns, Jonah Platt, and John Arthur Green Three terrific performers At the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick Running April 26th through May 21st Walk on the Moon's creative team, book writer Pamela Gray, and Tony nominee director Cheryl Cowler join us on the WBGO Journal to talk about how they've adapted this popular Miramax film for the stage. Cheryl and Pamela, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Pamela, you said this story began as a love letter to the working class Jewish bungalow colonies of your childhood. Can you talk about how the summer of 69 impacted you and why this mother-daughter coming-of-age story still resonates today? That's a great question because that summer was probably my 12th or 13th summer up in the Catskills. And you could feel change in the air because it was very early in July of 69 that Woodstock, there were rumors that Woodstock was going to move to the Catskill Mountains. It was, uh, they were kicked out of Woodstock Wallkill area. And there was, 
this excitement about the moonwalk going on throughout the bungalow colony. And I was one of the kids who was excited about it. But at the same time, I was seeing the hippies walking past the bungalow colony on their way to Woodstock. And I wanted to be with them. And I was too young to be with them, but that's where I felt like I belonged. And that culture clash for that summer, because a lot of people don't realize the Woodstock Festival was in between bungalow colonies and these working class Jewish communities, the culture clash plus the world of the Catskill bungalow colonies, which I had never seen portrayed in a film and uh, just led me to want to write this as a screenplay. And that's how it began. And the audiences have loved it ever since. Thank you for saying that, yes. Yeah, it's a walk on the moon. Cheryl, I understand for you, this really is the largest production in George Street history and will be like nothing else (laughs) that the audiences have ever seen in New Brunswick at the Art Center there. Give us a sense of maybe some of the challenges and the excitement to have this type of large production and what it brings to the audience. Well, I think one of the most exciting things about putting this very, very specific, intimate, um, feminist story on stage is how do you make it a musical, right? Like, how do you make it a musical? Because, you know, we are Broadway bound and we would, you know, and, and we want to make it a full experience for everyone. So I think... Yes, it's the biggest musical that George Street has ever done, but everything is coming from a very genuine place. You mentioned Jackie Burns before, and Jackie Burns is playing Pearl. So every decision that Pam and I have made about the physical production of this show comes from Pearl's heart, comes from Pearl's soul, and comes from what Pearl, as a a Jewish woman living in 1969, having been exposed to nothing else in her life, we have to remember that we ha- there, were no, there was no internet then. There was no fax machines. There were no cell phones. So, you know, and all of a sudden, as Pam said, she's standing in the middle of a bungalow colony and watching hippies go by and seeing non-Jewish people and seeing Black people and Asian people and Latinx people and, you know, and just people of color. And, and it was in her DNA to kind of say, oh, there's more in this world. So we wanted to create a very intimate bungalow colony and then a more in this world feeling. So how do you blow up Woodstock? Yes, we are putting Woodstock on stage. That in and of itself is an exciting and challenging proposition. So I think for me as a mostly, I mostly do plays. I don't do musicals, you know, as much as I do plays. It's really about the authenticity of Pearl's story and how that is visualized. And you mentioned the large production going on at George Street Playhouse, and we've talked about it many times here on the WBGO Journal. The quality of the shows, the quality of the directors and the writers, like both of you, and the quality of the actors. Jackie Burns' national tour of Wicked is Elphaba. I mean, you know, if you're playing the role of Elphaba, you can belt and you can sing. And Jackie is a wonderful actor as well. Like she acts as well as she sings. And I think as per George Street, I think David Saint has really, um, you know, walked his talk as far as his vision for 
George Street. So, um, you know, what attracted Pam and I to George Street is is not only the beautiful art center, which we visited the other night, um, and it's magnificent, um, is also David Sane has a very, very, very um, uh, impassioned vision for what theater is and how he can be part of that national conversation. And so we felt like with our story, because, you know, the other part about all of this is that anti-Semitism is so on the rise and um, it felt very um, significant to us to put a Jewish story up on stage. There are sides now, right? There are sides now. And David Saints Theater really welcomes um, and the staff at George Street really welcomes these difficult and also um, interesting and um, inspiring uh, big thoughts about society. We've had David St. many times here on the WBGO Journal. I've always fascinated with his story and his background. You too, Cheryl. Your parents were involved in community theater. Your late dad used to make costumes and your mother would sing and dance. And she took you to Pippin on Broadway all of this, I would imagine, had quite an impact on you as a youngster and have really turned you into this incredible Broadway theater icon. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I really appreciate you mentioning my parents, too. My, I grew up in Long Island, and I, I really want to turn this back over to Pam because, um, yes, my mother took me to theater once a month. My dad, um, ironically made costumes. He used to, you know, when you used to own cars, you used to have to replace the auto seat covers. So my dad used to sew seat covers. So why, you know, wouldn't he make costumes, but he made them all out of Naga hide. They were horrible and they were fabulous. <laughs> um, but I saw in, uh, Pam's story and in Pam's, uh, childhood, um, and in Pearl's story, uh, my mother, and so for me, this is, uh, you know, we have for shared intervention in our lives, right? Yes. And, and I've gotten to know Pam's family and Pam's mom, who I feel is also a huge inspiration for this story. Oh, for sure. Well. And my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my father was a salesman throughout my childhood. And during a big part of it, he sold funeral supplies. And my dad had been a stand-up comic in these small hotels and bungalow colonies in the Catskills. So that was his dream, but he was funny as hell. And you have to have a sense of humor when you're in the funeral business. <laughs> so we had, he had one customer also made maple syrup. So we had maple syrup and embalming fluid bottles on the kitchen table. <laughs> and he'd bring home the catalogs for me. I was fascinated by the clothes that were just on the top of the dead body. So this was my childhood. And um, there was so much humor in those bungalow colonies. Um, the crappy you know, structures of the buildings, my father and his buddy, we shared a wall that had a hole in it in the kitchen. And my father would say, Ben, pass the salt. And literally a hand came through. And so I grew up in this very funny world. My mother um, had to drop out of school because her father got cancer when she was a teenager. And so she wound up going back to college and my grandmother came to live with us when I was a child and she did achieve a lot. My mother's now, a re you know, she's in her eighties, but she was a retired school teacher and reading teacher and principal. But that kernel of that story, if we didn't have a grandmother who could come and take care of the kids, my mother couldn't have gone back to school. 
you know, so um, all those little elements of my childhood. And again, this feeling that the Catskills were paradise. You know, I grew up in a part of Brooklyn that was filled in swampland. And they literally like put a stick in front of each apartment building so it would grow a tree. So to go to this world where I picked blueberries with my grandmother and I didn't, you know, we, we joke about how in my family, we grew up not knowing that vegetables didn't only come in cans, you know, so, and we still have trauma about the canned asparagus, but that world, and that air and the blueberries and the humor and the feeling of family, even the summers that we didn't go with, you know, extended biological family and it, the friends became family. It was such a joyous part of my life and also an awareness as an adult. I didn't know the word working class when I was a child. I just knew that we couldn't afford a real vacation and that, the, you know, my father had to work during the summer and you know, when my friends' parents were taking them to Europe and how come we don't go to Europe? You know, it's like, well, we go to the bungalow colony. That's, you know, I didn't really understand the economics of that world until I got older and looked back and said- And the anti-Semitism of the world too. Oh, I mean, God. like, you know, we have to really, I mean, well, firstly, the joy of people who are, you know, 20-ish years outside of the Holocaust. You know, let's remember when this happened. And, you know, again, the prescientness of this story that we're in in, in society now, we're in this cycle of hate, um, racism, and, and that it's not okay uh, not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist now, right? And I think the Jews were really living that, albeit that um, we could assimilate, which we could, and we can choose to say, okay, we're not Jewish and, you know, you can leave us alone. Um, but the Jews, you know, our whole history is if we stopped looking, we'd get kicked out. If we stopped paying attention, we were put, you know, we were always being exiled or put in camps or, you know, so the bungalows was this place that not only could they breathe and enjoy and celebrate and go blueberry picking, which I also want to say that Pam speaks about this so much that Amory Malazzo, who is now on our creative team as a writer, wrote a whole new opening based on that. We replaced our opening number last week. <laughs> and that is also the beauty of George Street. George Street was like, yeah, go for it. You know, we are, uh, we're a breeding ground. Talk about vegetables, right, Pam? <laughs> right? Like, you know, we're a breeding ground for you to try these things and we're going to support it and we're going to have enough staff so that they can put the notes into the computer and the cast can get it. And we, and Josh Prince, our brilliant choreographer, we put a brand new opening number into our musical last week. That's fabulous. And we are not surprised when we hear Pamela Gray and Cheryl Keller tell stories because that's what they do. They're storytellers and they do it through theater. And in this case, musical theater. Pamela, when was the first time you wrote something that you said, pretty good, kind of magical? What a lovely question. Um, I went to high school in Brooklyn and there had been a tradition called Sing. And it was the different classes would each be given a topic and we would take musical theater pieces that existed and write our own lyrics to them and write a story around it. And I was the script and lyrics chairman from the time I was a sophomore. And it was heaven. It was just heaven. I loved musical theater like Cheryl. My mother took me to, uh, you know, 
Fiddler on the Roof and Men La Mancha and West Side Story and King and I and the kids made fun of me in school because that's what I wanted for my birthday were cast albums. You're so square. I was like, you don't know what it's like to sit in your bedroom and listen to these albums. But so I was in a collaborative experience. It was the first time I saw people in an audience laugh at my jokes. You know, I'd always been the little little kid who was the great writer, but it was the collaboration and the combination of music and that feeling of power sounds egotistical, but knowing that I am watching people respond to something that I, you know, wrote in my bedroom. It was empowering. Empowering. As opposed to like using power, right? That's right. It was empowering. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but my mother did sing at Lafayette High School, and she co-chaired it with Paul Sorvino. Oh, my God. The actor Paul You Sorvino. never told me that. <laughs> wow. That's why, we have the, that's why we have you on the WBGO <laughs> Journal, right? We want to hear new things that you've never <laughs> said before. Right? Wow, we that's spend never an been awful lot before. of time together. <laughs> but she does know that my junior sing beat the seniors, and they graduated in shame. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I loved writing as a child, but there was something about the experience with an audience and working with an, a creative team that was very empowering and inspiring for me. And I didn't really, you know, it wasn't like I had a guidance counselor in high school who said, well, you should be a theater major. I majored in, you know, Victorian literature and poetry. And I was... I just kept putting this aside. And when I kind of developed a creative career as a young adult, I was a poet and writing plays and just thought, you know, the musical world has passed me by until someone else came up with this idea and said, have you ever thought of it as a musical? And then just felt like a life stream come true. And it, and it made sense. It made sense that this is a story with such strong characters and such strong emotions and a historical event combining with a family drama and a mother and daughter in conflict and a woman trying to navigate her way between two men and neither one is a bad guy. And Jonah Platt is doing the most remarkable job playing Marty Kantrowitz because you feel for him, you care about him, he makes you laugh, you understand why Pearl loves him. And he's sort of trapped in a world of status quo and routine. And it's almost a time warp because of that summer. And Pearl with the partly conflicting inspiration of her daughter who's bringing the 60s into the bungalow um, just starts opening her eyes combined with the moonwalk which happened you know the second or third week that they were up there and the blouse man played by John Arthur Green you know he's not there to steal a Jewish wife from a husband he's just introducing Pearl to a new way of seeing and thinking and feeling. And, you know, my goal with the movie and here too is to be in the gray area where, no pun intended, where we under, we <laughs> may hate Pearl for what she's doing to Marty, but we understand it. And that we, we like watching her with the blouse man. And we're also thinking about Marty and going back and forth so that the audience is in the same 
emotional state that Pearl is at times. And well, I think you're under owning um, her feminism in this though. Like, I think that like, you know, Pam wrote the movie in 1999. Um, and interestingly, you know, Diane Lane played Pearl in the movie and then she played an unfaithful wife in Unfaithful, right? That was yes. the name of the movie. I think that, at, again, I, I, I know I've been speaking about society and the status quo, but I also want to speak to the patriarchy and, and, yes. and that um, still we're in 2022 now and still a woman who chooses to step out of her marriage for whatever reason is um, an anti-hero. Whereas men are looking to find themselves or men, you know, are bogged down by the children or men are bogged down by their jobs. And so like, yes, a lot has changed. And yet again, um, I, I do think that I'm interested, you know, I once had a directing teacher who said to me, um, and I pass it along when I, when I'm teaching is, you know, if two people don't walk out of the theater every night, you're not doing your job right. Right. <laughs> you know, if you're not taking those kind of risks. Right. And I do think that, um, we're being very mindful of keeping Pearl, everybody understanding Pearl's story, but actually we're, um, Pam has really pushed the envelope Whereas we have never, I mean, think of any musical that had a woman doing this. Think of any play really that, you know, didn't explore, you know, and this is just a woman who like, you know, got pregnant at 16, loves her husband, and then realizes that life is passing her by, right? So we accept that in, in men. And, um, and, and then I think in this world that we're really um, digging into and, it, um, and looking into the gender norms that um, should be cracked open and are being cracked open. Uh, Pearl is a human being, mm -hmm. you know, she's a human being. So, you know, um, I think that it's really, so I do think that everything that you did in 99 is just as prescient now. And I think we're pushing it even further than we have. Yeah, it's sadly prescient, you know, to think that there are still gonna be women in that audience feeling like, yeah, I didn't do what I wanted to do because I wasn't given opportunities. You can see the entire conversation with writer Pamela Gray and director Cheryl Keller on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Stay tuned for more great programming on the world's greatest jazz station on WBGO and WBGO.org.